You're listening to Software Unscripted. I'm your host, Richard Feldman. On today's episode, I'm talking with Jared Forsythe, a programmer at Khan Academy who has made a career in web development, but who recently has gotten into programming generative art on microcontrollers. We talk about hardware, software, smart devices, and designing APIs for both beginners and experts. Software Unscripted is sponsored by my employer, No Red Ink. No Red Ink makes software for English teachers, and we're on a mission to help all students harness the power of the written word. We're also hiring, so the next time you're thinking about a change, take a look at noredink.com jobs. And now, microcontrollers. All right, Jared, uh, thanks so much for joining me. Really appreciate it. For sure. So you're in a very small group of people I know who started out, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, but like I think it's safe to assume that you've done most of your career in web development and are now doing programming on microcontrollers. <laughs> so tell me about that. Like, How did you get into it? Like, What's different between that and web development? Tell me the story. Yeah, so I consider myself an artist as one of my core traits. Really, before programming, you know, when, when I was an early teen, I did a lot of origami and had a lot of fun with that. And one of the things that I really liked about origami is the materials cost was super low. <laughs> right? Sure. Scrap paper, junk mail, whatever it is, I can turn it into something fun. Of course, then, then I come across computers and materials cost is extremely low. And so, and, and right from the beginning, I was making some digital art stuff. I remember for my sister's like 12th birthday, I made like a collage maker in Python and Pygame, because, you know, this this was before there was lots of software out there that would let you do this easily. Anyway, so so I've always been interested in the interaction between computers and art. And several years ago, when I was still living in Utah, I found a makerspace that had a laser cutter and started playing around with that, because that, that's a way to design something digitally and then have it realized in the real world without me having to have a steady hand or anything like that. Okay, so I've never used a laser cutter, but I'm guessing based on the description, it sounds like you tell it like, here are the shapes that I want to cut and you put on some material like a piece of wood or a metal or something and it just uses a laser and it like cuts the, you know, the outline of the thing that you told it to cut. That's the basic idea. Nice, okay. So more people will be familiar with 3D printers and a 3D printer has the filament head that can move in three dimensions. So a laser cutter generally only moves in two dimensions and you can control the speed that it's moving at and the power of the laser while it's moving around. And that can change how deep the cut is, or if you're doing engraving, like how dark or light the engraving is. Oh, cool. So it doesn't have to cut all the way through. It could just like burn a little bit of a hole in there. That's right. There's a lot of flexibility. I've actually done a decent amount of laser cutting cardstock, and you can get it light enough that it doesn't even cut through, that it just makes a marking on the surface. But so I started playing with, around with laser cutters several years ago, and then two years ago when we moved to St. Louis. It was in lockdown. I didn't want to join a makerspace, so I bought my own laser cutter. There's a type of laser cutter that's called K40, and it's comes out of China. There are lots of different brands that kind of have their logo plastered on it, but it's like four hundred dollars which is just dramatically less than any other large format laser cutters you can get. Yeah, I, I would have guessed more for sure for like something that can cut through things with lasers. <laughs> right, right. The Glowforge is like $2,000 for their base. So there's a different kind of laser. I think it's filament based that is much, much less powered, like 10% of the power of the K40 that you can get for like a couple hundred dollars. Anyway, so I've had this laser cutter and... It, of course, came with a microcontroller on it. It connects to the computer with USB and you give it an SVG and it 
draws stuff. But this whole time in the back of my mind, I've been thinking, man, it's, it's fun to cut stuff out, but what if I could draw, right? And, you know, I've tried my hand at watercolors a little bit. And again, I don't have the steadiest hand. And I'm confident that if I could practice, I could get better at it. And I probably will. But wow, what if I had a robot that could watercolor for me? <laughs> <laughs> and you can find on Twitter people that are posting their, their plots. And the most popular pen plotter out there is the Axie Draw. And that starts, again, at like, I don't know, seven or $800, which I just have perpetual non-invented-here syndrome. I'm like, if I could make it myself, why not, right? <laughs> right. Why, why would I pay for that when I could just yeah write my own microcontroller code, which I've never done before? Exactly. I mean, if, could it be? <laughs> if there's lasers involved, I'll let somebody else do it, right? I don't want to burn my house down. <laughs> That's probably a good idea. But this is just a pen and some motors, right? Yeah. Anyway, so I've, I've had this idea kind of bouncing around my head for for the past two years at least. And I'd occasionally like sketch out some things to try and figure out how I would do it. Because again, like materials cost is something that's just kind of in my bones. So my, my thought with this pen plotter is, yes, I could go out and I could buy, you know, aluminum extruded linear rails and I could get all the bearings and get the fancy motors that everybody uses. But what if I could laser cut almost all of the parts? of this pen plotter wait so you're i didn't realize what level you're on here so you're on <laughs> the level of using the laser cutter to cut the parts for the pen plotter this is like <laughs> <laughs> so we're one step removed from like now you need a robot that can make a laser cutter exactly. out of parts yeah <laughs> yeah that, that's the final step but yeah, so I went ahead and I got the cheapest stepper motors you can get are called 28BYJ. They're pretty small, you know, not not super high powered, but they're like $2 a piece. And then a little Wi-Fi enabled microcontroller goes by the name of Node MCU is again like 3 or $4. And then I have laser cut all of the gearing involved and the, the chassis and stuff. So I'm instead of using belts and pulleys, which is very common for these kind of things, or a linear rail is also common. I've just got a rack and pinion gear that I've laser cut out, and it's actually working surprisingly well. But yeah, and and so, of course, the final piece of this all is writing the microcontroller code in C++ to get it to all work together. Okay, so you're you're now writing C++ code, but that's not something you've done professionally. No, no. The, the last time I wrote C++ in anger was in college and I was fighting Valgrind left and right. It was, <laughs> it was a nightmare. So what's that been like transitioning from like, I, I guess that's, uh, I assume still what you do is for day job is like writing what uh, TypeScript, I'm guessing? Almost. We're, we're getting off of flow. Okay. But, but, but yeah. Type checks JavaScript. Yeah. Modern JavaScript. It's honestly, I was very pleasantly surprised at how far C++ has come in the last 10 years. I was using it before the auto keyword was around, I think. Or at least I didn't know about it. So what, what's the auto keyword do? I, I haven't written C++ since the Carter administration or something. <laughs> right. So normally when you're declaring a variable, you have to declare the type, right? But instead of the type, you can just say auto and then your variable name equals and it will infer a lot of things. Got it. Okay. So C++ is a lot nicer to use. 
than I remember, which is nice. Now, it's quite a pain to get the new code onto the microcontroller. Well, when I say quite a pain, it takes like 45 seconds to upload. Oh, wow. That's a that's quite a turnaround time. <laughs> yeah, because I mean, th- this is, you know, as, as low powered a board as you can get with Wi-Fi that's generally available. And so it just has a fairly slow serial speed. And so you, if you're if you're transferring 500 kilobytes of code over, it just takes a little while. OK, so you have to compile your code to like some sort of binary executable, I guess. Yeah. So that takes, I don't know, maybe a second or two, I'm guessing. Yeah. On the order of seconds. Okay, so a couple seconds. And then after that, you're sending that compiled binary, what, over a wire, I guess, to the microcontroller? Yeah, there's a USB that you can plug into. Okay, and then that takes like another 40-something seconds. Right. Wow. Yeah, so that was that's worse than Webpack these days, right? <laughs> <laughs> Ouch. So pretty quickly, of course, what I ended up doing was making the microcontroller as dumb as possible so that it essentially only knows how to advance any of the three motors up to a target angle, essentially. So here's the next step. Go to this target angle, and it can be on three axes, and it knows how to interpolate. So if you do you know, 20 steps on the X and 40 steps on the Y, it'll move the X half as fast so that, so that it'll be a straight line instead of steps, right? But that's as smart as it gets. And then, of course, I built a web app that streams the commands actually over WebSocket now to the controller. Oh, I see. Okay, so let me check my understanding here. So it sounds like you basically made a little like primitive set of commands that it can run in C++, but it gets those commands over the wire from, or over the Wi-Fi, I guess? Yeah, over WebSocket. Um, there's, okay, a, right. there's a nice little library that you can just include that will allow you to stand up a web server on this little board. Okay, so you're sending it some data from your little web server, and then that controls how it actually... Okay, so the missing piece then is how do you get the data for... Because you want to draw, right? Right, like with your hand. So, so you have to get that data to the web server somehow. So how does that work? I wrote a little web app that currently allows you to... It's got some diagnostic patterns pre-programmed in, where it's like, draw a grid, just to make sure that everything's set up correctly. Because... There are a number of ways that the hardware could be misconfigured such that it doesn't actually draw a grid. One of the biggest things is backlash, especially given given the low-tech nature of the gears that I'm using. You can imagine when a gear is going one direction and it's making contact with the pinion and then it switches direction, there's a little bit of a turn before it starts pulling it in the other direction. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Physics. Wow. <laughs> Not something I'm used to thinking about when making software. And so if you're doing, especially if you're doing sharp corners, that really shows up, where if X is going constantly in one direction and Y has a corner, then you'll see the Y pause for a second, and it will be a rounded corner. I see. So how do you fix that? I thought about doing it on the microcontroller side, but again, it's annoying to program C++. <laughs> so I actually just have a preprocessor. After all of the steps are calculated, I go through and see if I'm making a corner on one of the axes, I add in a little jump where everything else waits while the motor rotates around until it's making contact again. I see. So whenever you hit a corner, like when you're drawing, you hit a corner, there's now a little bit of lag. Right. Where, yeah, but that's like better than it not drawing the right thing. Exactly. Huh. Okay, so a quick tangent here. So I'm kind of curious about, it sounds like, so you're, you're writing C++ code to work on a microcontroller. I'd always thought that my mental model, I guess, of, of 
doing development on a microcontroller is that performance is just absolutely essential. And like, if you want to get anything to work right and feel real time, like, especially if you're trying to get it to mimic what you're drawing with your hand, you got to have like every last little ounce of performance that you can get. And so I would have been, I, I am surprised, I guess, that you can get good enough performance that it like feels nice when the way that you're getting the data to the microcontroller is like going over Wi-Fi from a web server that's like running on a different machine and running JavaScript. And then that's getting its own data from another source of the, the actual drawing. And then on top of all that, after you make all the calculations, you do another pass over them to do these like fix-ups. It sounds like there would be so many, I would have guessed that there'd be so many steps in there that it would there would be a lot of latency. But it sounds like, I guess it's reasonable. Yeah, so the key is to have, I guess, as in a lot of programming, know where your tight loops are. Uh-huh. If I wanted to control every step of the stepper motors from the WebSocket, that would be abysmal. But because I'm giving, I, I'm sending steps over that will take at least tens of milliseconds to complete the tight loop on these little boards, which again are dinky, but you know, they're in, oh, I can't remember. It's like five megahertz, maybe 10 megahertz. It's nowhere near a modern CPU, but it's still like millions of times a second. And so the, the tight loop is, is working on nanoseconds, not milliseconds. If I'm getting that right, maybe microseconds, I don't know, but it's still orders of magnitude away from the latencies that we're used to even being able to measure in JavaScript. Right. And I guess there's an element of it doesn't have that much work to do. It's not like it's doing a bunch of string processing, for example. It's all just numbers. What's the data format? Like when you send this stuff over the wire, are you sending it in JSON or? I tried doing that, but then the binary got too big to fit. Okay, because there there was a JSON library that was available publicly. And I, I tried including it, and it, it got over the limit of what can fit on the ROM. Do you remember what that is? I think it's under a megabyte. Okay, so JSON decoding, too much uh, <laughs> of a payload size. Okay, so what'd you end up doing instead? So I, I sent him over as a char, a C string, and then it gets parsed into an array of C structs. After I started this project and, and got it, kind of working, I started trying to fix up little CNC at a makerspace that I just recently joined here in St. Louis. And I learned all about G-code, which is a, a fairly standard format that is used to control CNC routers and 3D printers and all kinds of stuff. And it's, it's actually fairly similar to what I came up with. It's a plain text format where each line starts with an integer code and then like x-coordinate, y-coordinate, z-coordinate depending on what the command is to do. And, and G-code supports like turning on the filament and turning off the filament and controlling speed and all this stuff. I mean, really, if you think about it, that's kind of what binary executables do, right? I mean, it's like you have an opcode, that's like an integer, that's just like, what operation do you want the processor to do? And then it's like some number of you know arguments, kind of, and that's it. <laughs> Except it's like not very human readable, but I guess that's why you have disassemblers that can make it into something more human readable, but... Right. And it turns out that processing speed over the wire is not my limiting factor. My limiting factor is how much RAM my little thing has. Because if I'm sending over, say, a Euclidean spiral, which is the the kind of spiral where there's an equal distance between each of the rings, you know, there are a lot of steps in there. Because my microcontroller only knows how to do straight lines. 
And even if it knew how to do parameters, it's a constantly changing curvature and stuff. So you're splitting the spiral up into several thousand short lines. And my microcontroller only has some number of kilobytes of RAM. And so it can only store, I think, 3,000 steps with the current struct format that I've got. So you got to like batch them up and and send them, yeah, one at a time. But it can, like, if it were streaming, like it, it can stream kilobytes per second, probably more than that. So the limiting factor, again, like I say this to explain why I didn't try to do a binary format for streaming over the WebSocket, right? Because it's it's not, oh, how fast can I get this data? It's how much can I store while I'm waiting to draw it? So I'm curious about, I made an assumption, but maybe that's a faulty assumption. I assume when you said like drawing, you actually meant like with like a tablet or something, like where you've got like a, some sort of pen like thing and are drawing shapes. But it sounds like based on the Euclidean spiral that you were just talking about, that it's actually more like drawing in the sense of like, you know, a paint program where you're using like the mouse and you have like a palette of things you can choose from. Do I have that right? Or how does it actually work? So in practice, what I want to use it for, again, if, if I were drawing with a with a tablet, I could just use my own pen, right? <laughs> sure. Where's the fun of that? <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's true. That, that's way too simple. No, I, of course, am using a computer program to produce a vector that I then send. So whether that is geometric art, I, I made a program for making Islamic geometric art that I've been using. If you check my Twitter, I've been laser cutting that out a lot. And I even tried to, to hand watercolor one of the patterns that I'd produced by printing out a black and white version and, and putting it underneath a piece of paper and, and trying to do it. And it was fun. There are a lot of imperfections, but that's the beauty of hand-drawn, right? But anyway, yeah. So the art that I want my pen plotter to be plotting is generative art. Okay, so you're not translating mouse movements into lines, but rather you're writing writing code that's being sent over. Okay, got it. So that makes sense. And it also means that you have uh, much less strict, stringent latency requirements because really you just got to like make sure that you get the commands over in time for the pen to like do the right thing in time, I guess. That's true. Although when setting up configuration of like where are the bounds of your piece of paper you want to have really tight feedback so you can jog, you know, be pressing a button on the, the web page and have it move and then release and it stops. But again, the bounds of human reaction time, anything under 100 milliseconds is essentially instant. And the WebSocket round trip is like five milliseconds. Uh-huh. I was thinking about this because I remember seeing a demo that I think it came out of Microsoft some number of years ago, where they demonstrated drawing on a digital tablet where they had like some sort of pen that's registered by the tablet. And they were just like drawing a line or a little squiggle or something like that. And they demonstrated the difference between one millisecond, 10 milliseconds, like 100 milliseconds of latency. And you could definitely tell the difference between all of them. And it was like only the one millisecond one was the one that felt like it was like a pencil, you know, like it was just like immediate. And and even just watching the video, you could tell, which I always thought was pretty cool. But at the same time, I was like, well, I remember when I was a kid having something like this, but it was completely not electronic. It was like some little... I don't even know what this thing was called, but I think it used like iron and magnets or something where like it had these little hexagons and you could like draw with your, and there was a little bit of latency there. Like while you waited for the magnet to pull the iron up to fill in the little hexagons as you were moving your pen across them. But I could still draw stuff with it. Like it wasn't, it wasn't like that was a blocker. I mean, it would have been nicer, you know, if it, it was instant, but there's definitely some threshold, like you said, where it's just like, yeah, I mean, human reaction time, like, it's like, there's good enough, and maybe it could be better, but it still feels like you can draw on it. 
Yeah, and I guess there are some other critical differences, I think. I mean, with a with a screen that you're drawing on, I totally understand that the one millisecond versus 10 milliseconds is huge. Given that the screen is separate from where the drawing is happening and that the format is much different. So my pen plotter produces the current version. I have plans, but the current version produces pieces of art that are about one and a half inch by one and a half inch. And the precision it can achieve is kind of mind blowing. Like doing that spiral, like in the one and a half inch, it can spiral around like a hundred times. No, that's a low estimate, probably 300 times. I certainly can't do that with a pen. Uh. Right, exactly. (laughs) And so, yeah, even if it were, I'm drawing on the screen and it's following me. Well, actually, more important than software latency, again, is physics. What's the max speed that we can run these motors to move this pen across the paper? Yeah, because I guess if you, if you just like put down, like I want a line, whoosh, and you just it just draw it real fast. It's like, well, hang on a sec. I got to exactly. a motor here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's the more important limitation from having. Now, now I'm imagining like you with a tablet and you've got a, a robot attached to the side of a building that's like doing massive like <laughs> and trying to get that to be real time. Right. Anyway. Good luck getting that real time. Yeah. <laughs> I guess with the laser cutter, I mean, this is probably really dangerous and a terrible idea, <laughs> but I mean, you could angle the laser, right? If you want to like jump to a different point, if you, as long as you never get your geometry wrong, even a little bit, you know, you could just be like, I want to jump to this corner. No problem. Just <laughs> change the angle of the laser. <laughs> You're right there. Right. Although actually the, the depth of field is quite tight. Depth so, of, what's depth of field? I'm so, not familiar. So when the, when the laser is going around, it originates in a big old tube full of CO2. And then it bounces to a couple of mirrors and then it bounces down. And probably due to some physics reasons, it makes a lot of sense for the bouncing around to be done when the laser head is quite large and uh, low powered. And then right as it angles down to go to your piece of wood, it goes through a lens that focuses it down to a very small point. Right. Okay. And so the focal distance of that lens is where you want the wood to be. And if it's an inch out of place, it's not even going to make a mark. Huh. Okay. I didn't know that. In my mind, I have this sort of like Star Wars lightsaber level of mental model about lasers where it's like, I don't know, they they look cool and they cut stuff. <laughs> <laughs> but that makes sense. I mean, that yeah, there's there's a, a lot of physics considerations behind them. And yeah, if, if things don't line up properly, then it's it's not that it like cuts a hole in your, you know, garage. It's that it, it doesn't do anything. <laughs> right. Which, I mean, maybe it could also cut a hole in your garage if you did it wrong in a very specific way. Right. I imagine probably one of the reasons that they do that is so you don't burn a hole in your mirrors. It's just easier to move it around when it's not at the burning hole stage. That also makes sense. Cool. So do you have any ambitions to, like, now that you're capable of doing microcontroller programming and, like, familiar with how it works, do you have any ambitions to, like, you know, reprogram your fridge or something like that? Oh, I... I'm very wary of all things smart home because of our knowledge of how flimsy software often is like i don't i don't want people to be able to hack into my fridge so that's interesting i i've heard this but i actually so i'm personally the same way where i'm like i don't want smart anything and like the tv that we have at home is actually i forget how many years i mean it's coming up on 10 years old now and when i originally got it i was living in san francisco and a friend posted Hey, I found this TV outside. Does anyone want it? And I was like, I don't have a TV. Sure. And that's still the TV that we watch TV on. And I've been like thinking, well, at some point, maybe we should get like a 
modern TV, but it's like 99% smart TVs, which I have no interest in. But for me, it's not because I'm worried about somebody hacking into it or like I know there's another concern about privacy. For me, it's just honestly a, a, a matter of like bugginess. And like I keep seeing people posting screenshots of like my fridge bricked on a software update or something like that. Right, like, that's I, the better I don't argument. Want that. Yeah, like <laughs> I would like my fridge to just keep working and doing exactly the same thing. I don't need it to give me analytics about anything fridge related. I really just want it to never brick because of an over the air update. Yeah. So actually, the fridge that was was here when we moved in is a Samsung fridge. Now, fortunately, it doesn't have like a screen or anything, but I don't know, six months after we moved in, I was leaning against it. And it, you know, it's got these touch buttons or whatever. Leaning against it, it made a little ding sound. And I was like, I don't know what happened. And I look at it and it's got zeros on it, like zero degree Fahrenheit or something. And I'm like, okay, I guess that's a reasonable temperature for the freezer to be at. But it it also had that on the fridge side. And I was like, that doesn't make sense. And then I so I touch a button and then the numbers flip to like normal looking numbers, you know. 34 degrees Fahrenheit on the fridge. And I'm like, okay, like weird thing for a fridge to do. Anyway, fast forward eight hours and I realized that the fridge is not refrigerating and the freezer is not refrigerating because what I had inadvertently done by leaning against the fridge was turn it into display mode. What? (laughs) And the, the way that it tries to tell me this is to have an O, F, and then a little degree Fahrenheit F because of course I would know that means off. And, and like I have, (laughs) (laughs) oh, wow. So even now, I think we've done it two or three times where it's like, oh, if you lean against this side of the fridge, it stops being a fridge, but now we know how to turn it back on. Ah, yeah, that's, that's very frustrating. I definitely wonder sometimes about just how we can make software in general, not just less buggy, but better designed, I guess. It seems like a lot of software is a lot more error prone than it needs to be. And I don't know if there's a technology that can help with that or if it's just a cultural thing or what. But I mean, like as soon as you describe the symptom of like what happened, it's like, well, yeah, it should be actually quite difficult and involved to put a fridge into display mode, ideally to the point where once you've bought it, you never accidentally put it. Like you you need to put in one of these like, you know, secret agent codes where it's like, tap this, hold this for six seconds, not seven seconds or also, you know, you're game over and then tap this thing three times and then like stand on your head. And then like, you know, then it goes into display mode. or, like, or plug a USB key in the back, right? Like make it sure, require a piece right. of equipment that I don't have <laughs> <laughs> even better. Yeah. But yeah, but, but instead somebody shipped it with that design and granted once you've shipped it with that design, I guess you do maybe want over the air updates so that they can ship you a fix. <laughs> I don't know. I don't I don't trust the people that made this design to make a better one. Which is fair. But then again, I mean you brought up the USB key. Like I honestly wouldn't wouldn't mind if it's like, hey, we fixed a flaw in your fridge, your non-smart fridge, which is still running software, because let's be honest, I mean the current fridge that I have is, you know, not quote unquote smart, but I'm sure there's code running in there in a microcontroller somewhere. Uh Fine. Send me a USB stick that I can plug into it that will do a hardware flash uh, and, and you know update it like that. And yeah, I mean, it that could brick it. That could cause problems, like definitely. But for some reason, I have an intuition that they're going to test that a lot more than an over-the-air update. There's going to be a much bigger like quality control process because the cost to getting it wrong is so much higher for them. It's kind of like, you know, of course, the 
the extreme example of this is something like NASA, right? You have a bug in your software and it's like, well, it cost us $36 million to get that software out into orbit. So that's a bummer. Let's just do another $36 million launch to push an update to get the fixed version out there. Like, no, you're going to really, really test very, very carefully. And I'm not saying that I want that for my fridge, but something in between that and maybe the other extreme example being, I remember back in like the 90s when the internet like became a you know widespread thing, there was this cultural shift in computer games specifically. This is like before consoles were internet connected. And there was this cultural shift where it stopped being the case that it was normal for you to like buy a game the day it came out and for it to be not buggy because of patches. It would be that like, they would have some like the game creators would have some sort of deadline that's like you know the, you got to hit the shelves by this date you know we got these marketing things in place or these agreements with retail stores cuz that was you know the main distribution channel back then was like physical boxes on shelves and so they're like look we know there's bugs whatever we're just going to ship it and then we'll by the time it actually makes it into people's hands hopefully we'll have a patch and so, like, you couldn't really anymore just, like, pop the game into your CD-ROM drive, <laughs> as it was at the time, and just play it and just, like, assume it's going to be fine. You always wanted to get the patch right away. But before that, it was like, I mean, you rewind to, like, floppy disk days. If you're buying a game on a floppy disk, that's it. There's no patch. There's no over-the-air anything. Nobody's got an internet connection. You buy King's Quest V or whatever, and that's it. You just got what's on the hardware. And... I believe that people tested their games more and like, and, and like if they needed to wait to ship to prevent more bugs, they would. And there's something about that that makes me think that the overall level of software like quality, reliability was higher, even though now we have more tools, ostensibly, we should be able to do an even better job at that. But it's almost like some of the tools have become a crutch where like because it's easier to ship a fix, we don't bother trying to fix things ahead of time we just kind of yeah we'll fix it later oh you know fix it in post fix it you know patch it up send the over the air update whatever and yeah when it's like a game maybe that's not that you know the stakes aren't that high but when it's a household appliance they can get pretty high yeah so even a little bit into the internet era you still had like game boy cartridges that you know that there's never going to be a patch for this you you just have what's on the hardware so we we have a little bit more sophistication on the software side, but still pretty bug free, right? I mean, there, there are a couple of famous bugs that are fun to take advantage of, but they went through a lot of QA. So a bunch of thoughts here. One, NASA, I know one thing they do is they ship redundant systems, right? So if you look at the hard drives that they send up, they've got like four of them in case one of them gets hit by like a neutrino and they need to use one of the other ones. So like redundancy, I think is an interesting concept. I saw an image probably from Reddit a couple of years ago that was like, here's the Linux system and it's visualizing all the dependencies. And here are kind of the single points of failure if this goes out. And somehow they they had created a similar visualization of a genome and no single points of failure, right? There, there, there's lots of redundancy, lots of multiple ways to get an essentially equivalent outcome genetically. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, certainly when it comes to hardware failure, redundancy is a good answer. But I mean, like going back to the example of the fridge, right? I don't think you can like use redundancy as a tool to fix that design flaw <laughs> with the uh, display mode. Right, right. And that's, <laughs> that's where Q&A gets you. I mean, going back to the biology analog, there are some exploits 
for the human body, right? If you get if you get too much arsenic in your system, you're you're just going to shut down, right? But there are there are lots of other ways in which it's very resilient to different environments. We've got a fairly wide range of temperature that we can be okay with. Diet-wise, you could eat just rice and beans for a long time and be pretty okay, or just fish and nothing else for a long time and be pretty okay. It's kind of remarkable how flexible it is. But it does seem like it comes back to economics, as lots of things do, right? What, what, are, the, what are the incentives that people are working under, which is just kind of jumping around tangents here with household appliances. One thing that you often hear from baby boomer generation is, you know, back in my day, a fridge lasted for 50 years, right? And now you've got to buy a new hairdryer every three years and a new XYZ all the time. And rather, I I haven't tried to do any research on this, but my assumptions are one, our appliances are a lot cheaper to buy these days, inflation adjusted. If you want a fridge, you can get a fridge for like $100, $200, it's not going to be the best fridge. It's not going to have a screen on it, right? But like, and it's not going to be the biggest, whatever it is. But we are we are using much cheaper materials. And we've been able to dial in the materials used to be just on the border of what is necessary. You're not going to have a bracket that can withstand five times as much force as it's likely to experience. It can maybe put up with one and a half times the force. And so when you kick it, it dents. Yeah. And that allows it to be cheaper. And because people are have, have gotten used to cheaper, then you put up with, with cheaper construction. And we're not demanding that things be able to last long term because we like having the new thing that has more improvements and bells and whistles and all this stuff. This reminds me of taking it even further of the like, you know, oh, back in my day, you know, things were better and lasted longer. I had a physics teacher a long, long time ago who gave a really interesting perspective on this. And he was talking about crumple zones in cars. Like modern cars are designed so that if you're in a, like a high-speed accident, like you smash the front of your car into something, it's designed to crumple up because that crumpling basically absorbs some of the impact and prevents it from getting transferred through to the driver. So that's actually a safety feature. Car gets wrecked more easily, but driver does not get wrecked, which is more important. And he, he gave this uh, analogy or kind of told the story. He's like, you know, you could take some of these like old cars that were like, you know, metaphorically built like a tank and you could be driving one of those, just floor it, stomp on the accelerator straight into a brick wall and just get out like, like nothing happened, except you wouldn't get out because you'd be dead. But other than that, like the car would be fine. Somebody else could come up and drive away in it. <laughs> right. Yeah. Which kind of reminds me of like, you know, you mentioned like there's the cost angle, right? Like there's definitely a benefit to society to these things being more affordable, more people can have access to them. I'm reminded of a friend who was talking about like there's uh, some relatives that he visits in a, an area where they don't have very good refrigeration and it really just like limits what types of food you have access to. So like refrigerators being cheap, good thing, even if they don't last as long. But this physics example of like the cars and the crumple zone is like another interesting example, I think, of it's not it's not even about they don't make them like they used to, but actually that in some ways, maybe the way they used to make them, yes, it had some good properties, but that actually maybe came at a cost of something that was like worse. I'm not saying that's true across the board. I think in, in plenty of cases, you can just look and say like, yeah, the way that people used to make this thing was actually better. And I prefer the way they used to make it, all things considered. But I'm sure there are, there are plenty of examples of that, like not just in cars and with, you know, crumple zones and safety and stuff like that, where, yeah, you can look back and say, for example, like 
this fridge lasted a long time, but also a lot of people got cancer from some of the stuff they used inside it. I don't know. Like I, I use that as an example, not because I know that <laughs> fridges used to cause cancer or something, but just because a recurring theme of like modernity is finding out that stuff we used to do actually causes cancer. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. So I, I guess another good example of this, I got a used circular saw. It's probably like 30 years old, very well constructed, but weighs a ton. And this is a hand tool, right? You're, you're lifting it up, you're moving it around. It's not going to dent if anything happens to it. But the circular saws they're making these days weigh a quarter of the amount and they'll break easier, but you won't wear your arm out using it. So yeah, I don't know if this is a circular saw. I think maybe it's like a table saw or something. But one of the coolest modern inventions that I've seen in terms of hardware construction stuff is the I forget what the term is. It's like, um, you're probably gonna know it right away. But the saw stop. Yes, the saw stop. Exactly. Where like, it's like the saw blades whirring and to use it correctly, you have to be having your hands pretty near it to like slide the wood into the saw. And then if your if your finger makes contact with the saw blade, I think it like completes an electrical circuit that tells it to slam on the brakes. And I think it even uses like an explosive or something to like stop the saw blade motion like in a tiny, tiny fraction of a second. And it like breaks the saw, but like, again, fine. You didn't cut my finger off, which, you know, greatly appreciated. Yeah, yeah. To all the the table saw users out there, if you're using it correctly, your hands get nowhere near the blade because... Okay, it shows you what I know. (laughs) You're using another piece of wood to push the wood. If you're using it incorrectly, your hands might get near the blade. And if you're really doing it wrong, your, your hands would touch the blade and get cut off. And saw stop protects people from hurting themselves. Got it. Now, okay, so so maybe to be charitable about it, maybe you have a kid wandering in and turns it on and, you know, but that's good to know. I mean, now that you say that, it's like, oh, yeah, obviously that may, like, I've clearly never used one of these before, but, but yeah, use a piece of wood to push another wood. That makes sense. It's a really easy solution. That reminds me of, in software, there, there seem to be an awful lot of equivalents of that where people will, I, I see this a lot in like library design. And I'm not going to pick on any particular examples, but like I'll start using a library and I'll see this very convoluted API or suggested method of doing things. And I'm thinking about like, what is the problem that this solves? Like, why is it so complicated? And then it turns out it's like, oh, it's saving me from like typing an extra five letters. Like there's some really, really simple, straightforward solution, but it's like, no, 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 that's that's too verbose or boilerplatey or something. So we're just going to instead add about 1500 lines of code and all these new rules to learn. And it works 95% of the time, but 5% of the time it causes a terrible bug. But we did save those five characters, you know, and granted, like saw stop, you know, preventing kids from getting hurt definitely sounds like a great thing. But I have to wonder, like the fact that there was so much demand for that, I'm guessing it wasn't all kids, it was probably in a lot of cases, just people not knowing about the technique of like, just always push a woodblock, or they get a little bit impatient. They're like, oh, I have to like get out another piece of wood. Like, I don't want to bother with that and just not bothering and then having very serious consequences. I don't know. I guess the longer I've, the more time I've spent with software, the more I've been drawn towards the simpler solution that doesn't require all of this extra complexity or all of this extra cost, maybe runtime cost, maybe code bloat cost, whatever. Just be like, okay, just, just teach me the technique. I'll do it. <laughs> I'm fine with that. I've become more of a like, push the wood block with the other wood block kind of a programmer as my (laughs) (laughs) career has progressed. That's great. Yeah. I think one thing that, that leads to a lot of this, there are certainly lots of causes, but one thing is trying to balance the tension between something that is easy to learn versus easy to, to use in a complex environment. 
is the hello world easy to write or is the production app easy to write? And there are definite trade-offs and it has a lot to do with how familiar the person coming to it is with the various paradigms that are going to be used in this language or this framework, right? A lot of learning is how quickly can I make the mental connections between what I already know and what they're trying to teach me, right? And I'm going to Strange Loop in the fall and I saw one of the talks is about a language that gradually adds functionality. So a teaching programming language where it starts out with almost no syntax and it is a programmer coming to it will will automatically recognize, oh, there's so much ambiguity here. There's no way you're going to be able to make something that is more than just a couple of trivial lines of code, right? I think, you know, it's it's just text in English. I think it's translated into a bunch of languages, but in English, it would be say hello world. And the parser knows if it sees a say, then everything on the rest of that line is a string and you console.log it, right? Oh, I see. So you don't even put it in quotes. Not you even just... quotes. Yeah, okay. And that's level one. And then level two is adding variable names. And you can say, ask for name. And then it'll it'll have a prompt and you type it in. And then you can say, say hello name. Again, no quotes, nothing to signify that name is now a variable. You actually can't use the word name in the rest of your program because it's always going to be replaced, <laughs> right? Like, right, right, yeah. Obvious limitations, but bringing things up very slowly. And it, it's it's using analogies from teaching language, uh, spoken language, right? Where it's like, we don't introduce you to the rules. Like we can understand what you're trying to say when you're a kid and you can't conjugate verbs or, or when, you, when you're learning language for the first time and you conjugate things wrong. We can, we can get from context clues what you're trying to say. And then in the next level of, of the language, it introduces a way to denote what's a variable and what's not. And people will realize, oh yeah, this solves the problem that I just had where I wanted to have your name is name. And it said, your Richard is Richard. And it allows you to, to motivate all of the syntax rules of a modern programming language where if you were to just jump in head first, you might be like, ah, oh, there's so many rules. Like, why do we even have to do these this weird curly brace and this dollar sign? And how do I even remember all of it? Because it's all jumping at me at once. But when it's building up step by step and motivating each one, then you're creating memory locations of, oh, this is the pain point that this is solving. And now I can remember it. That's super cool. Wow. I'm very interested in that. I appreciate that as like a, a design specifically for a programming language designed to be, you know, like beginner friendly and to be learned. I wonder if like if that, yeah, it's tricky because if you were to try to add something like that, like introduce that, something like that to a language that's like optimizing for production use, like for for building things that, you know, get used by other people, like serious levels of complexity. I don't know, it might be too much. Like it might be that trying to bolt that onto an existing language, maybe you end up biting off more than you can chew, like trying to do both of those well at the same time. But for a language that's designed for teaching people who don't know how to program how to program, that makes a lot of sense. That's really cool. Yeah, so one one analog that we have in the React world is create React app, and then you can take the training wheels off. I forget what it's called, export or something. Eject, there you go. Where it's like, here's the, the simpler configuration. You don't have to know what an ESLintRC is. You don't have to like do all these things, but you also can't change the lint rules and you can't you know add Webpack plugins or whatever. And so there, there's a break between the one level and the next level. In languages that have macros, I think you have the potential for this, but it shows 
a lot of the weaknesses too, because if you're coming to a project and you don't know whether it's level two or level 10, there's a lot of reorienting of like, oh, right, I can't use variable names and I can't use this. So I I can imagine there being some downsides for sure. Yeah, one of my pet peeves is software that, I guess this is mainly like libraries and frameworks that optimize for the getting off the ground experience explicitly, and maybe not intentionally, but definitely very much at the expense of later on. And like really, I mean, just to kind of boil it down, it's like, this makes for a great demo that makes you want to use the thing. And then later on, you feel like you've been tricked. I am stuck using this thing. Now I have, I was so excited about it early on. And now that I have this big code base, it's awful. And I'm stuck because I've made this big code base. I'm not going to rewrite it in something else. But like, I don't know, it, it almost feels like a borderline form of like software malpractice to do that knowingly, you know, to be like, I'm going to optimize everything for like this really nice demo and that'll entice lots of people to come use this thing. And then after they've committed to it and it's too late for them to turn back, they'll discover that the ways that I achieved such a nice demo, such a nice pitch were by sacrificing things that will bite people later on. I assume like I want to give people the benefit of the doubt and assume that when people make stuff like that, it's not intentional. And it's like they think that they're making something that's just nice, period, and not realizing like what the downsides are going to be later on. Or maybe for the use cases they have in mind, they're like, well, I don't think the software is ever going to get that big that it'll cause these problems or something like that. But whenever I see that now, like I've, I've, I've gotten burned enough <laughs> by using stuff like that, that now whenever I see a pitch like this, I immediately start asking questions like, okay, but what's this going to be like at scale? What's it going to be like when I've written thousands of lines of this thing? And a lot of the times I'm like, no, 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 no. <laughs> right, right. I would love if anybody listening knows of examples of, of the training wheels coming off. Right, where it's like making it so that when you're just starting out with a couple of people, you can really get off the ground quick. I mean, and th- this is the classic like global state problem, right? If you're working by yourself and it's all in one file and it's less than 2,000 lines, like global state is super nice. And then as soon as you have more than like one person working on a project, you all hate it and you have to rewrite <laughs> the whole thing. But I would love to know if if there are patterns or languages or something that have made it possible to make the transition from a small one-person project to a slightly larger multi-person project where it is getting the best of both worlds. And I wouldn't I wouldn't have a problem if it's like, okay, and now you run this rewrite script that changes it all to language version two that has the more complexity, but it is, but you do get the benefits. I don't know. Yeah. Interesting to think about. I mean, that's the dream, right? I mean, you you want to make something that's like really nice and easy to get into and is really convenient early on and lets you build something and ship something really quickly and yet also scales really well and gives you a great experience later on. Fingers crossed. Uh, we'll, <laughs> we'll see what people come up with. Awesome. Well, Jared, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. This is a, a fun conversation about a lot of different things. Yeah, pleasure. Awesome.